Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 14, 1 Chronicles chapter 14, and it's a study on wisdom and folly, wisdom and foolishness. In this chapter, we see that God is blessing David. He's prospering David, and David's fame is spreading as a result of it. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. And it says, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees with masons and carpenters to build him a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel, for his kingdom was highly exalted for the sake of his people. Then David took more wives in Jerusalem, and David begot more sons and daughters. So David and King Hiram, they were really good friends. And we're told in other places in Scripture that Hiram loved David. And here at the beginning of David's reign, as king of Israel, King Hiram wants to help David build his house, his palace. Verse 1 shows us more about David's character in a different way than the other verses in our text. His conduct in building a house for himself was in contrast with turning his home into a harem. So we have, first of all, three thoughts about David's actions. First, we see that he was wise in building for himself a royal mansion, according to verse 1. Because, you see, it would likely give a sign of stability to his throne. And as a result, it would make his position more secure. And it was good for his family because they should benefit as much as possible from David's position as being a king. And it was wise to make domestic life as attractive to himself and as respectable to uh, those around him in the eyes of his people as he could make it seem. By By doing all that he could, and even going outside the boundaries of Israel to provide for himself a house of cedar, David was doing a wise and right thing. Secondly, he was foolish, though, and wrong in multiplying how many wives he had, as it's mentioned in verse 3. And foolishness because, first of all, he was deviating from God's word. He was deviating from God's design and God's principle when he took more wives at Jerusalem. When the Lord was giving uh, principles for governing kings, listen to what he said. But he, speaking of a king, shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Deuteronomy 16, verses 16 through 18. You see, God gave David honor, and God gave David success. But you see, it wasn't for the purpose of his own personal enrichment. And his own good. And David realized that God had prospered him for a special reason. And it it says here, for the sake of God's people. He was doing it. David was getting blessed by God. God was doing it because of the people. You see, many times we're tempted to use our position or our possessions only only on our part ourselves. Only for our good. Instead, we have to keep in mind that God has placed us where we are and he's given us all that we have so that we can encourage others and give to those who are in need. Now, 
David collecting wives and concubines in a harem. Now, that was the custom of that day among Middle Eastern royalty. But it doesn't mean that God approved of this behavior. Because, this again, this was not God's will. This was not God's ideal at all. We read in Genesis 2.24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the word joined is cleave. And the word cleave means to be glued upon. It's, the symbol, it's a symbol of permanence. One man, one woman. David's marriages brought him great power and influence. You know, the, the more, you know, he'd marry you know, other you know, kings' uh, into, uh, daughters, and, and you know, they, they'd become like, like family, and it would strengthen him because the other king, now they're, they're family. And so, again, by doing all these different marriages, it brought him great power and influence. But those, those, those wives caused a lot of stress, jealousy, and even murder within his family. So you might be thinking, well, why did God let this happen? Why did God allow it? God allowed the multiplication of wives, but he didn't approve of it. And it's going to result in God judging David, and it's going to bring David a lot of sorrow for the rest of his life because it was wrong. Now, this record isn't given to us because, again, God approved of it. But God wants us to know that this is exactly what happened. This is just a historical record. And as we follow it, we'll discover God's attitude. At one time, during the time of David's rejection and Saul's pursuit of David, all right, the Philistines uh, thought that David had become their man because David went to Gath, you know, in the land of Philistia to hide from Saul. And by doing that, the Philistines thought, well, David's on our side now. David has switched sides. And now that he's returned to his own people, and he's their king. The Philistines are out to get him. The third thing that we see in these verses is that his mistake outweighed his wisdom. It's a lot better to live in a humble home with one family, living in harmony, peace, and love, than to live in a luxurious mansion where there's jealousy, strife, restlessness, and no joy. Proverbs 17.1 says, Better a dry crust eaten in peace than a house filled with fe- feasting and conflict. And David's later history sadly proves that he laid the wrong foundation, causing him the worst problems when he took uh, more wives to his royal palace and changed what would have been a happy home into a harem. His foolishness outweighed his wisdom. So, think about this. Apply these thoughts to yourself, and you'll come to the conclusion that the wise Christian man will... Do all that he can to provide a warm and welcoming home for his family. Because you know what? The Christian, the Christian home is the hope of the world. And as it becomes more and more the center and the place to start when it comes to godliness and purity and of righteousness and wisdom, it will bring the kingdom of God upon earth. There was a great principle in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 5, and it goes like this. A newly, man married, a newly married man must not be drafted into the army or be given any other official responsibilities. He must be free to spend one year at home bringing happiness to the wife that he has married. You see, that principle was that, 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 that the home was so important that he was not to go into the military. He was not to take on any other responsibilities He was to form that foundation to set up the foundation of that new marriage and that new home for the first year. 
And you see, the thing was that any average man could take that new husband's place in the army. But nobody could take his place in the home. And his wife would suffer tremendously from the heartache of being separated from her new and beloved husband. And if he died in battle, man, she'd sorrow his mourning. Uh, he'd sorrow, she'd sorrow his loss. She'd mourn for him. So this law shows the high value that God puts on human love and the responsibilities of marriage and family. Remember, God instituted the family before he'd instituted the church and government. Because, you see, you don't, you don't have a society without a family. And, and if you don't have godly families, you don't have godly society. So we need to let the Christian home have everything in it that's attractive, that's warm and welcoming. That's, what, that's the setting that Adam and Eve were placed into. God created a beautiful garden with beautiful sights and sounds with everything that Adam and Eve needed to live happily. And there was nothing there that, that could hurt them or could, you know, could ruin that relationship. So he placed them in a, in, a, in, a, in a great environment. We need to let that environment be strong and beautiful. and We need to let all the work and care be spent on that home so it may, be, so it may have all the possible things to please the heart and to fulfill the desire for a godly home. You know, we read in Proverbs, uh, Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Families establish homes and guards and protect cities. But all of these efforts, all of this work is for, of no value if God isn't in, of it, in all of it. You see, the move to reputable neighborhoods you know, we see this all, you know, I, I'm, I'm moving because I, I don't live in a reputable, uh, good neighborhood. People move to reputable neighborhoods uh, where there's good schools, low crime rate. They install home security systems to keep the family intact. And yet they don't seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. They neglect their first love, their first responsibility. They become lukewarm and pretty soon the old man is back in the home. The flesh. The old ways. All the precautions that they took for the welfare and safety of the family can't do any good because the Lord did not build a house, nor was the Lord the center of the home. A family without God can never experience the spiritual connection that God brings to relationships. Or they miss a dimension that God intended for them to have, the spiritual dimension. A city without God will crumble from evil and corruption on the inside. So don't make the mistake of leaving God out of your life, out of your family. Because if you do, everything that you accomplish will be useless and fail. Jesus said, anyone who hears my teaching and ignores it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. And when the rains and the floods come and the winds blow against the house, which represent the, the trials and, and the, and the uh, the, the hardships of life, he says, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Make God your highest priority and let him do the building. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, God is not against man's effort. Hard work honors God. But you see, working without rest being gone all the time, neglecting the family, working a lot of overtime, maybe it's a cover-up for saying, no, I can't trust God to provide for all of our needs. 
Now, in Israel's rebellious unbelief, they complain about God. They complain to God about going to the promised land. Listen to one of their complaints. Numbers 14, 3. Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? That our, notice that our wives and our children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? Egypt's the type of the world. Earlier, remember, he told the kings, don't go back there for horses. Don't let the people go back because we're never to go back into the world. But here they're saying, well, hey, you know what? You know, you're, you're putting our wives and our children in jeopardy. They could become victims in this new land. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? Further down in the same chapter, Numbers 14, verse 31, listen what the Lord says to their response. He said, your little ones, notice, whom you said would be victims. In other words, they were saying, you know what? God said, you don't believe I can take care of your kids. You don't care that I care about the welfare of your children. He says, I will bring in their children. He says, and they shall know the land which you their parents have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Sometimes we use our children's welfare as an excuse for not serving God. It sounds so honorable. But it implies, God, you're not thinking about my kids. You're not thinking about my family. But God will take care of them. When, as we obey him. And we all need enough rest in times of spiritual refreshment. Jesus said, come, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. He told the disciples, Mark, Mark 6, 31 and 32. He says, for there were many coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. Jesus saw the need for the, the guys to rest. He says, you've been busy all day. He says, come on, let's go out and just get alone and, 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 and spend some time with me. At the same time, this verse also is not an excuse to be lazy. Proverbs 18.9 says, a lazy person is as bad as somebody who destroys things. We have to be careful to keep a balance. Work, work while trusting God and also rest while trusting God is important. We read in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Notice God is at work in us. That's God's part. Then we do all that we can and he does what we can't do. You see, he gives us a responsibility as well. Secondly, you have to have self-control. We, ha we have to keep from doing what God has forbidden. We need to guard against all pleasure, that is, dangers that will damage your influence at home or leave a stain on your reputation outside. Remember when Lot was, was, was told to, to get out of Sodom and Gomorrah because God was going to bring judgment? Lot rushed out to tell his daughters, uh, his daughter's fiancés, hey guys, come on, we got to get out of the city quick. The Lord's going to destroy it. Remember the response of the, of the guys? They thought he was joking. You see, because he was living there in that city and had become a, 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 a part of that city, the son saw his, his, his influence was, was practically, he didn't have any. He didn't take him seriously. You're joking. You're just messing around. 
Proverbs 25, 28 says, whoever has no rule over his own spirit, that is no self-control, is like a city broken down without walls. A city without walls had no protection from the desert uh, raiders. Those who would go through the desert looking for cities that didn't have walls, they say, hey, here's one that we can pillage. There's no walls to protect them. And if we don't have any self-control in our lives, we're like a city with, that, with broken down walls and Satan knows how to get in. Proverbs 4, 20 says, uh, 23 says, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it the heart springs the issues of life. Because you see, our heart, our feelings of love and desire pretty much determines how we live because we always find time to do what we want to do and what we enjoy. Solomon tells us to guard our heart more than anything else, making sure that we focus on those desires that will keep us on the right path. And you have to make sure that your affections lead you in the right direction. Put limits on your desires. Do not go after everything that you want or you see. We need to look straight ahead. We need to keep our eyes fixed on our goal and not get sidetracked and detoured. That leads to sin. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things. And then we need to remember that one serious mistake can ruin a lot of good that we have done. Like David, who definitely lost a lot of influence and his power because he didn't stay true to family morality. And, the, and at the same time, it will definitely happen to us and we won't be able to change it. We'll lose influence, we'll lose peace, and we'll lose joy if we make one serious mistake in, in, the, in managing our life. Whether it's the career that we choose, the choice of friends, more specifically, the choice that we make in a lifelong partnership in marriage. How many people have lost their joy or usefulness because of one sad mistake? How important in this respect more than anything else, more than any other matters, to not act impulsively, but on conviction, to ask God's guidance for the biggest choices of our life. Look at verses 4 through 17 now. And these are the names of his children whom he had in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Elpilet, Noga, Nepheg, Jephiah, Elishama, Beliada, and Eliphalet. Now when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over all Israel, all the Philistines, notice, went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went out against them. Then the Philistines went and made a raid on the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of God, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? The Lord said to David, go up, for I will deliver them into your hand. So they went up to Baal Perizim, and David defeated them there. Then David said, God has broken through my enemies by my hand like a breakthrough of water. Therefore, they called the name of that place Baal Perizim, which means major break, a master breakthrough. And when they left their gods there, David gave a commandment and they were burned with fire. Then the Philistines once again made a raid on the valley. Therefore, David inquired again of God and God said to him, you shall not go up after them, circle around them and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching the tops of mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle. For God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. 
So David did as God commanded him, and they drove back the army of the Philistines from Gibeon as far as Gezer. Then the, then the fame of David went out into all the lands, and the Lord brought the fear of him upon all the nations. Now here in verses 4 through 17, we have this battle that's mentioned, or I should say recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Our Christian life, and you've, you've heard me say it before, it is not a pleasure trip or some sightseeing adventure. It is a serious battle. It is a serious warfare, or rather a long, drawn-out struggle. David's battle here is a reminder for us. First of all, it's a reminder that there are well-known enemies that every Christian man and woman must expect to fight. David knew very well that he had to fight the Philistines before he could get full possession of his throne. He was, his enemy was determined on challenging David's power. And it was expected that a series of battles would take place between the servants of God and these idolaters. All of the Philistines, notice verse 8 says, all of the Philistines went looking for David. Your enemy is, is, is looking, looking for you. He will come after you. When a man or a woman becomes the servant of the great king, they know that their spiritual enemies will try to kill them. And you have to be aware of that because, again, constantly being reminded, you're in warfare. You're in a battle. Your enemy is searching you out and he's trying to figure out how to take you out. And if you don't know this, you soon will. You will soon find out that no one is more sure to be attacked by temptations than the ones who's just enlisted in the army of the living God. And here's why. First of all, the world will come against you. We see it happening now. And the world will come with a huge variety of hostile influences that are alive and well in an unbelieving and ungodly society. Secondly, the flesh will attack you. All those impulses, cravings, desires to do wrong and all the evil that arise from our fallen nature, all of our appetites and passions, they come at you. Third, the devil will seek to get you, to seek to devour you. Peter warned us in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober. That is, be watchful, watch out, be vigilant, you know, do your duty. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The word devour means swallow up. He's not just coming to take a bite out of you. He's coming to do you in, to swallow you up. Lions attack the sick. If you ever watch like National Geographic and, and how a lion looks for its prey or a predator, they stalk the flock and they look for the sick, the young, the straggling animals, and they choose their victims who are weak and alone or they're not alert. And that's what Peter is saying here. This is what Satan is doing. He's waiting for your weak spot. And if you're not watching and you're not alert, you're not reading, you're not prayed up, and you're not in fellowship, and hey, Satan knows. Peter warns us to watch out because the principalities and the powers, the spiritual forces, even though you can't see them, they're out there. And they're strong adversaries in the battle. Listen to the spiritual battle described in Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. The messenger was on the way to David with answered prayer. Then the messenger said to Daniel, don't be afraid. He said, since the first day you began to pray, Daniel, for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request had been heard in heaven. 
He said, I have come in answer to your prayer, but for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of kingdom in Persia. There was a battle between God's messenger and Satan's messenger for answered prayer for 20 some days. So when you don't get your answer prayer, understand there is a spiritual battle in the process. Also, that he must consult God's will on how to conduct the battle. We have to pray. We have to read and learn how to conduct the battle, the warfare that wins. We read in verse 10 that David inquired of the Lord. And then in verse 14, we see that David inquired again of the Lord. And David did as God commanded him, according to verse 16. Before David went to battle, he asked God first, Lord, go with me and give me your guidance. Every time we leave our house in the morning, guess where you're going? To the battlefield. You're headed for battle. Have you spent time with the Lord? Have you prayed? Have you read? Are you fit for battle? You know, it, it's like a soldier to go out to battle. He's been equipped with the weapons of war. But how foolish would it be to go out to the battlefield, face your enemy, and leave all of your gear behind? Christians do it all the time. And then they get beat up in the world and they wonder why. Listen to Moses. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you, whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray, if I have found grace in your sight, show me now your way that I may know you and that I may find grace in your sight. And consider that this nation, Lord, is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to the Lord, if your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. And if God ain't going with me, I don't want. And if God is your co-pilot, you better trade seats. You seen that bumper sticker? God is my co-pilot. You better trade seats and let God do the driving. Moses said, Lord, if you don't go with me, I'm not going. He says, for how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? Too many times we wait until we're in trouble before we turn to God. And by then, man, we're already starting to suffer the consequences of our actions. Do you ask for God's help only out of desperation and as a last-ditch effort? Rather than Him being a first priority, He becomes a last resort? You need to go to Him first. Like David did here, that, that you might receive, you know, just uh, extraordinary help and avoid a whole lot of serious trouble. David was far from relying on his own skill and, and even after succeeding so well in verses 11 through 12. Even after great success, he didn't rely upon himself. His successes didn't tempt him to assume, to assume I got this down. Man, I'm a good strategist. I'm a good general. Boy, I know what I'm doing. I don't need to ask God anymore for direction. I, I got it down. He still asked God and he still did what God told him to do in verses 14 and 16. This attitude of asking God and then obeying God after he gives us instructions, it has to be our attitude as well. We must not lean upon our own understanding. 
but ask for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We need to seek instruction directly from God and God alone and his help through the written word of God. And then when we've been victorious, don't take it for granted that it was our own doing. We need to continue to go before God and obey him. Look at verse 12. And when they left their gods there, David gave a commandment and they were burned with fire. David's quick and decisive action against these idols helped to bring his kingdom together. And it helped to get the people focused on worshiping the one true living God. David was obeying the law that said in Deuteronomy 7, 5, you shall destroy their pillars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images and burn their carved images with fire. David obeyed that law immediately. Most of the kings that came after David, they didn't do that. They failed to destroy the idols, and that led to unbelievable moral corruption in Israel. Soldiers often wanted to keep souvenirs from the battlefield, and 2 Samuel 5.21 tells us that some of the men would take some of the idols. But David here says, hey, burn them all, man. Burn them all. That's the only right response to sin, to get completely rid of it. Get it out of your life. You can't be a follower of God while you continue to hold on to parts of your life where God is not the center of your thoughts and actions. And you have to remove whatever takes the rightful place, uh, the, takes rightful place, uh, God's rightful place in your life and follow him with total devotion. Paul said, remember, a little leaven spoils the whole lump. Leaven is a type of sin. It spreads. A little leaven, if it's not dealt with, it will grow and grow and grow until it overtakes you. Look at verse 15. And it shall be when you hear a sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall go out to battle, for God has gone out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. Now, what was this sound of marching in the, uh, in the tops of the mulberry trees? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. Maybe it sounded like an army marching in the air. Maybe it was an army of unseen angels that that may have moved above the mulberry trees, you know, putting terror in the hearts of the enemy and, and making them take off. And as they ran away, they fell into the hands of the Israelites who had swung around to the rear and they were in total confusion. The enemy was in total confusion. You see, there are times when we are to do nothing more than wait until there's no doubt that God is preparing the way for us. How often I've heard people say, well, you know, I really, you know, I haven't heard from the Lord and, and, and I'm not, you know, he's, they, and that I've heard, well, I'm just going to step out in faith. Oh, watch out. That might not be faith at all. It might be presumption. It may be because I want to do it. And instead of trusting in God and waiting upon God, we might be tempting God. We need to wait for the Lord to give us his signal. We need to wait for the sound in the tops of the mulberry trees. We need to be careful that what we call stepping out in, in faith is, is, isn't simply a foolish move on our own feelings or desires. You see, sometimes we're tempting God instead of trusting God. But when he does give the signal, then it's our duty to move out. 
Remember when the flood was about to fall on a, on a sin-guilty world? Noah, had, Noah was commanded to build an ark to save his family and all those that wanted to you know, join him. Remember when the fire and the brimstone was coming down on Sodom? Lot was grabbed by God's angels and urged to run for his life. When the children of Israel were in danger of being overwhelmed by the Egyptians, God signaled them in order to advance. And by a pillar of cloud, he led them through the parted sea. All of their history is marked with illustrations of this truth. That God led them. God let them know when it was time to move. In closing, we have a personal application. There are times when every child of Jesus hears the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees. There are times when we hear that. There are times when when we hear that and we're to move out. When you don't, or I should say when you do, hear the, 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 the marching at the top of the mulberry trees, when you do hear it, don't just sit still. Move. God's given you the go-ahead sign. When our hearts are stirred up with, the, with compassion for sinners, this is the time to pull them out of the fire, as Jude said. And if the Holy Spirit is stirring you up, this is the time to move with the Spirit, to save men from, from hell. And as God moves in us, let us move to, let us move to offer salvation to those who need, the, who need salvation. And we need to, to open our hearts to God's voice and the influences of God's loving Holy Spirit as he moves in us and speaks to us. Father, we thank you once again for your word. Father, help us to be men and women, God, moved by the Holy Spirit as well as stopped by the Holy Spirit, God. Father, when we're told to go, we need to move out. And when we're told to stop, we need to stop. And Lord, we saw that in the children of Israel in the wilderness. When you led them by day, a pillar of fire and, or a cloud and a pillar of fire by night. And sometimes that, that, that signal stopped the children of Israel for six days, six months, six years. But however, however, how long, Lord, we are to stop and not move, Lord, until you tell us that you give us the sign, the go ahead, the green light. And if you're here this evening and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, <clears throat> we do pray that the Holy Spirit will reveal that great need to you. Without forgiveness of sins, there is no redemption. Without the forgiveness of sins, you can have no meaningful relationship with God, no personal relationship at all. Because sinful man cannot approach holy God. And when we come to Christ, it's his holiness. It's his righteousness that's imputed to us. It's his robe of righteousness that he puts on us that enables us to stand before the Father. The worship team is going to lead us in a song of worship. And if the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart <clears throat> and revealed to you your great need for salvation, then we do 
pray that God would move in your heart. As we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front here, and I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.